Have you ever wanted to get inside the minds of today's top entrepreneurs and creative thinkers? The Upside with Brad Keywell gives you intimate access to conversations with the world's smartest, most creative people. In 2015, President Obama tapped Sarah Feinberg to run the country's Federal Railroad Administration. Despite the fact that her background didn't include rail experience, Feinberg had long worked in government. She had started her career on the Hill, served in the White House during President Obama's first term, and was chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Transportation. In the two years she held the post, Feinberg embraced what she calls Technology 101, leveraging data to improve safety. In this episode, Brad and Sarah riff on the unlimited potential of data to transform government, how tech companies can do a better job of solving the problems that matter, and why she says Washington is always the last to get the message. It's the second in our series with political disruptors. This is The Upside. So Sarah Feinberg, it is a pleasure to have you on. So thank you for joining us here in Chicago. Great to be here. There's a lot I want to dig into, but I really want to start with really now. Last week, I hosted a panel discussion about women in technology. Your experience, both representing Facebook and also being an innovator and a, and a thinker in terms of what technology can achieve. What do you think is going on with the imbalance of women versus men? And how would you rank that as a, a major issue or an issue that gets corrected over time or, or what? I think it's a huge issue. So first of all, you know, in my career, I've really only worked in male-dominated industries. So government was probably the most female of all of the industries I've worked in. And, and campaigns in the federal government are not exactly, you know, like run by women. But technology and transportation are extremely male-heavy. And so I've always sort of been at tables and been in rooms with very few women. And that's just been through my career experience. And it's, I think, exciting and really important, this moment that we're having, both the Me Too movement and also just sort of the the acknowledgement that there aren't enough women in technology, there aren't enough women in industries like transportation, there aren't enough women on boards, there aren't enough women, you know, at the table in the room. And you think the Me Too movement spills over to the not precisely the movement itself, but you think it has a positive or negative impact on the imbalance in the technology space? Yeah, I think it's positive. I think because the more that we are listening to women, that media that media is covering what has been happening to women over the last, you know, many decades, I think it's only positive. You know, Sheryl Sandberg said that she has some concerns about the Me Too movement because it may lead men to, you know, choose to mentor women less. And and I agree there are some there's some repercussions there that we have to be careful about. But generally the fact that we're talking about some of the stuff that's been swept under the rug for so long is really good. But it's a painful moment. I mean I was having a conversation with my mother last week who just had her seventieth birthday. And this has brought up a bunch of feelings for her. She's you know, she's pissed. Feelings of of anger. Yeah, she's pissed about what she went through in the 70s and 80s. And she has a right to be pissed about what she went through in the right. 70s and 80s. Maybe that's what Me Too is, a sort of apology moment or a realignment or recentering of true north around around gender. Well, I think it's at least refreshing for women to feel comfortable enough right now to come out and say, this happened to me. I swept it under the rug at the time, or I pretended it didn't happen, or I went on with my day and I had a stiff upper lip. But right. you know what? It wasn't right. It was wrong. And I, if maybe people aren't going to own it, but at least people get to talk about it a little bit and say, this happened. One of the questions I asked at the panel was, can anybody envision a thing, an event? What could happen that could immediately change things 
definitively in technology? And there was really no answer. Be- and I ask you, a remedy of, a, of an imbalance in a workplace, you can't just change it overnight, or can you? Because it takes training, it takes hiring, firing. What do you do? You know, I, I don't know how you solve it overnight. I don't know if it can be solved overnight. It probably can't be. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about is during my time at the Department of Transportation, I thought about numbers a lot and because there is a tipping point. Um, when you get to a point where you have a certain number of women, uh, when women become a certain percentage in a room, in an agency, in an organization, behavior does change. You know, there's research that backs it up, but behavior changes when a certain number of women are in that space. And some of the research says 25%, some of the research I think says 35%, but I'm not a psychologist. I don't really know why that is. I don't know why people start behaving better, probably because there are more eyes on them, probably right. because you know it feels like women have you know teammates and sisters with them. But that's one way to go, is Your getting the is, numbers up. At least it puts you on a path towards parity because you've got critical mass uh, from a scientific standpoint. Right. Right. Should corporate boards be 50% women? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll be for that. Yeah. But how about 20%? How right. about 25%? How about 30%? You'll see a huge improvement right there. I agree. Something's got to change. Let's talk about, about technology in relation to the government, which is probably the largest technology spender in the country. And I would propose, from my perspective, the most archaic technology user yeah. in the country. That's both a problem and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you have played many roles in government. I want to start in the Department of Transportation at the Federal Railroad Administration. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the use of technology from your perspective and how you rate it. A 10 being phenomenal, one dismal. Let's start with that. You know, a three. A three. (laughs) A three, probably. And how much could you change that as the leader? So you were put in a place to lead our railroad oversight arm of our government. Mm -hmm. What's it like to be atop an organization like that when you understand the opportunity and you want to make change? So you can do some things, and I did some things. I was there two years. I I ran the agency for two years. Had I run the agency for four years, I think I could have done more. Had I run the agency for eight years, I think I could have done more. Because some of this takes time, right? It's whether it's procurements or, you know, you don't want to take people who've prioritized one thing and, and rip a whole team apart and put them on something else because you may lose a priority along the way. So two years, I think I had an impact, but I didn't get you to do, do like, as much as I wanted. Give me an example of what you could get done. So, you know, an example is we took a bunch of the data that the FRA collects and we looked at it, I think, in ways that it hadn't been looked at before. So basically, if you're a railroad and you get into an accident, as long as it's what we refer to as significant, I think more than like $15,000 worth of damage, you have to report it to the FRA. Or if there's an injury or a fatality, you have to report it to the FRA. So we have all of this data, and we weren't necessarily using it in all of the ways that we could. And I think they're still not using it in all the ways they could, and they have a long way to go. But we started looking at that data and figuring out where are the worst grade crossings in America? Where are people most at risk? You know, where are we having the biggest safety issues. I mean, that is technology 101, right? right? I mean, that's data data 101, right? So obviously the uptake is taking advantage of the fact that sensors are covering the majority of the industrial assets in our world. So there's 250 plus sensors on every locomotive and there's so much opportunity to know exactly what's going on and also what will happen in the future based upon Things like an anomaly in vibration and right. noise and something like that. So Temperature. the ability yeah. exists 
to spend X amount of dollars to save Y amount of lives. Right. That is a better expenditure of those dollars than doing nothing and reacting to the accidents and inefficiency that happens when you don't take advantage of that information. So that, I would propose, right. is a fact. <laughs> Yet that fact is not a priority in our country. What do we do about the illogic and poor resource allocation of our government? So that's exactly right. You're 110 percent right about that. that. I think the cause of that is a couple different things. First of all, there's a cultural issue there. So as the safety regulator of the railroads, the railroads were used to me bringing them in and yelling at them about safety, right? And saying, you have to improve this, you have to improve that. At one point, I would try to bring them in and talk to them about efficiencies and data and how can, I don't want to yell at you all the time about safety. I would love for you to just be a more efficient railroad, collect data, share it with each other, have a cleaner understanding of when you're going to have a, a brake failure or a wheel failure so that you can take those cars out earlier so that you are not contributing to congestion around places like Chicago. What was their reaction? The reaction was, they looked at me like, why is she talking about this? You well, know, why? But why, that, why but is then she... what do you do? Because, like, I, I think about Jeff Bezos versus a CEO who's measured every quarter. The quarterly obsessed CEO is going to prioritize short term benefit at the expense of long term progress because that person is rewarded by every quarter. Jeff Bezos said from day one, I am focused on building something extraordinary and that requires short term sacrifice for long term significance. Mm -hmm. How do you get that mentality changed in government when all of our leaders are short-term focused two or four years, mm -hmm. six years at most? I mean, I think, again, it just has to be a cultural shift. So in my example, you know, the railroads weren't used to looking at their regulator as someone who would even talk to them about efficiencies. It never even occurred to them that we would be having that conversation. They only thought that we would be having safety conversations. And so they were surprised and not prepared for it, you right? Think they were like, yeah, we're gonna, we can just wait. We can wait her out. We can wait her out. And also, you know, I came in here prepared to talk about fatalities and injuries and accidents. And she's talking to me about how I can make my operation more efficient. I think they just sort of didn't know what to do with it. Now, railroads are incredibly old school, too. I would never hold them up as like the most technology focused right. or savvy in the country. But as a government, we just culturally have not moved the ball forward with data and with tech the way we could. And I think we made great strides under President Obama. None of that is happening now, from what I can tell, under Recently. President Trump. And so we're losing tons of time. We're losing, I mean, the amount of time that you're losing when you're not moving that ball forward is devastating. My daughter's a freshman in college, and she's coding and interested in technology. And let's assume you wanted to convince her that there's hope for the government to embrace the things that she's learning, for real, that it wasn't just like lip service. How do you quickly explain to her that it actually could be a good career to apply what she learns, you know, her genius to, to our government? I would say to her, Washington is always last to get the message. They are always the last to hear the voice and to hear the message. And so they will get there. They should have gotten there by now, but they will get there. And eventually data and technology and coding and improving all of that for the government will save lives, will prevent injuries, will save taxpayer dollars. But it's, this, is, this is where you and I are probably on the same page, where the hopefulness is that it, it will matter. The hopelessness is when. When will there, there be a break of the bureaucracy and the opening for innovators like you to actually just make decisions? And part of it depends on who we elect, right? Right. right. Good point. So I'm going to bring up um, something that you did with Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook around organ donors. 
tell us about what you did with the organ donor issue and how you were able to nudge the needle. I mean, nudge is the perfect way to describe it. I mean, first of all, so this is one of the reasons I went to Facebook, not because of this organ donor project specifically, because I didn't know about it at the time, but that idea that with as many users as they had at that moment, and I think it was 1.1 billion or 1.2 billion, with that many users, there are ways that you can nudge behavior that can solve some of the greatest problems in the world, right? right? And Sheryl Sandberg, who's wonderful, had the idea, it was probably a couple months into me being at Facebook, where basically if users would share on their profile that they are an organ donor, that would be a nudge in the right direction for all kinds of reasons. What happened? What was the result? So the result was mixed. Wasn't viral like you would have expected. It wasn't. And I think that it can still get there. But as you know, you run a tech company. And Facebook at the moment in time, had they just become a public company. And they had a lot of priorities. I would have loved to have made this sort of the, <laughs> the top the priority. The company. But as you can imagine, um, you know, People sharing on their profile that they're an organ donor wasn't the entire focus of Mark and and others at the time, um, for good reason. But it's the perfect example of what technology can do. I mean, we know how to solve the organ crisis, right? We have doctors who know when a kidney has failed. We know how to do the surgery. We know it will save your life to have a kidney transplant. We know that there are enough kidneys that we can get those transplants done and save every life. The only issue, the only issue, is matching the donor with a recipient. That's it. It'd be interesting to create a definitive list with perhaps an open sourced calibration of difficulty, cost, time maybe, of problems that can be solved with technology that have not yet been. Mm -hmm. And maybe like a wiki on each item that, that says, here's where we are, And that way you can have even better visibility of, okay, look, we're we're making choices. We'd rather sit around and wait for disasters than be proactively eliminating disasters. The logic of technology and the illogic of of ignorance is where I get confused. And one of my great frustrations when I was working in tech was there is such opportunity to solve the world's problems. And Facebook is doing a lot of that now, and, and other tech companies are too. But there are so many people in Silicon Valley who are making it easier for you to get your dry cleaning done and making it easier to you know hang out on Tinder, whatever. And that's fun, and it helps make your life easier, and you know everybody needs to get their dry cleaning done. But there are such great minds that can solve the worst problems facing the world, and I would like to see them working on it and doing it faster. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I was invited to Davos as part of this technology pioneer program. And that's what I found myself talking about was the amount of brain power and resources and investment all focused on convenience and the lack of those focused on consequence. And if you say the leading indicator of focus is capital, venture capital has not yet really valued the complicated yet valuable activity of funding consequential technology. But great. I mean, look, that's what I, you know, like uptake to me is focused on consequential outcomes of safety and uh, reliability and, right. and things that affect the world. So leaves an opportunity for people like us. And government can have a role there, right? Yeah. Why doesn't government incentivize tech to do some of that work, yeah. right? Well, listen, Why? that's where you. I think we're reaching that conclusion. Government could do so much more than it is. So much Let, more. Let's go to your desire to be consequential. And I want to ask about your, your, your mother. And you know, she was a judge 
-hmm. on the federal district court in Charleston. And I'm curious how you trace the dinner table to your desire now as an adult to to matter in a way that has resonance to lives and not just maybe a more superficial, tangential attachment? You know, I think what my clearest memories are actually of her being an assistant U.S. attorney. But what I took away from it was her incredibly strong belief, even while she was putting bad guys away, that everyone deserves a strong defense in court and to have their voice heard, but that what I refer to as bad guys should pay consequences. Did she challenge you at that young age to study something, to to take something seriously, to not do something? I mean, I'm, curious, I'm just curious about parenting and, yeah. and you meet somebody like you and you say, how did you get there? What, yeah. what was and the my, input? Yeah, and my father is a lawyer too, and both my brothers are lawyers. So clearly, like some people, you know, so they, they felt like this drive to go into the law. I clearly like missed that memo at dinner. But if there was one thing that was taught and enforced in our family, it was that your actions have consequences mm. and you are responsible for them. But I mean, you know, the main thing also is that my mom worked like crazy, particularly when she was in trial. I mean, she would be out the door before we left for school. She would come home for dinner she would go back to the office. And you said to yourself at those moments, what? This sucks. Why doesn't mom stay home more? Why doesn't right. she pick me up from Girl Scouts? Which Have you recalibrated that with her? Oh, my God. Yeah. A thousandfold. Yeah. You know, now I'm so grateful that I saw that. You know, you have those moments when your mom doesn't drive carpool or whatever, and it's just funny that you think it matters when you're in third grade. But whatever, it does. And then I am so grateful to her now because she was just super tough and a strong role model. And my dad did a ton to support her. I mean, my dad was frequently the one who was cracking the whip on homework. He was the one who was home at night when she went back to the office. If we would make the argument that media also sends messages to youth about what families are supposed to be like, what do you think today is a defining voice in media around a norm of family life? Because I'm wondering if there's a balanced, you're talking about the value of a balanced parental relationship and focus on integrity and hard work, which I had a very similar experience as a kid. If every input has an output and every action has a consequence, I wonder what the output is when the input is Kardashians as role models. Right. I worry that it's I can just make my living and be famous by posting some stuff to Instagram, right? Bizarre input. So, okay, we're going to totally shift um, around starting at your dinner table and going to what you then did professionally was communicate, was manage input and output. Input is the facts and the stories and the output is how do you articulate what's going on Mm -hmm. in a way that you want the world to hear, which, by the way, is added in its fascination to me by the fact that you're married to a producer for for Vice Media. (laughs) So you really are in the middle of the communication business in, in the media space. What does it look like to be a great manager of communications at a Facebook or for the White House? What do you do every day? So what I did every day is I would try to take what was happening, which was usually big and complicated and messy and, you know, not pretty, and, you know, boil it down and make it more understandable. I am not a big fan of spin and only being sort of a few inches deep and, you know, being able to answer the first question or the second question from the reporter, but not being able to go and answer the third and the fourth and the fifth. So I was a fan of being very transparent and very clear. I mean, I, in my time in government, I always, and and my time at Facebook too, I always felt like, 
like whatever was happening, the American people were grownups and they can handle it. And so what we need to do is explain it and be really transparent and be prepared to answer questions, but not pretend like everything's going to be fine, but just be prepared to answer the questions and make sure that people understand what's happening. I'm, I'm a big fan of give me the bad news first, but give it to me clean. Just tell me what's going on. Yeah. I can then deal with it. Yeah. And then tactically or organizationally, I've, I've studied GTD with David Allen and a bunch of other techniques of staying organized around chaos or just an overload of input. So you were the right hand to Rom when Rom was the That's chief right. of staff to Obama. That's right. And Rom's job was to make sure he knew everything that was going on and had the ability to act and react at a moment's notice. And make decisions, right. Which exactly. means you have to have all of that capability ready to go. Right. How do you stay organized? So I had a colleague too. So we basically split the job because I, I don't know how Rom as one person did his job and just being an advisor to him, we basically had to split the job because it's just too big. So we split it up by issues. And at the time I did constant check-ins with him. That was sort of how I would stay organized or whether it's a scratch piece of paper you're carrying around or your notebook you're carrying around or whatever, but you very quickly know what the priorities are and what doesn't matter or what can wait or what you can talk to him about that night. But we would check in every morning, probably 7.15 before the first senior staff meeting, and we would talk about the day, what's happening, what's coming at us, what had happened overnight. But frequently it was also just like, what are you doing later? What did you have for dinner last night? What's crazy to <laughs> me Because you that... need a minute of like right. sanity in there. Yeah, yeah. And it was the first of probably 15 check-ins that day too, so. Very interesting. The cadence with which not just Ram, but many leaders that I know, the cadence of communication, short bursts all the time. I operate very similarly, and it's interesting. I think it, it just lets you have your mind ready to go. Right. And if the edge of greatness is learning, constantly learning, what did you learn from that time in the White House with Ram that has made you a better person today? Oh, my God, so much. I learned that... Probably the most important thing in sort of the darkest moment of a crisis is to be calm and to very sort of intentionally figure out next steps about communicating to the public, about communicating to the Congress, about communicating to the president, about communicating to the chief of staff. So you learned staying calm, but then did you learn how to stay calm? Was there some trick, some hack you picked up? I mean, you were in the middle I mean, of the I, financial crisis. But, you know, I will tell you that being in the middle of the financial crisis, but being in a room with Rahm Emanuel, Larry Summers, and Tim Geithner actually didn't feel as scary to me as you might think. I mean, maybe it was because I didn't understand as much as, as others did. But when you're in a room with Larry and Tim and Rahm, you know that you have the best and smartest minds in the world. And I felt very calm and, and had confidence that if it was possible to get through it, they were going to get through it. Take us to a scene. Take us to one story you can share where the story could teach me something that you learned about how to be calm in a moment when literally the entire world is looking at a room that you're in. So I actually think the scariest moment during my time at the White House was the H1N1 flu. Every year there's a flu season. Every year more people than you want are, you know, die of the flu, 30,000. It can be deadly for the elderly, for babies. When I was in the White House, the H1N1 flu was particularly deadly. It was an awful flu. And pregnant women, if you remember, were dying of it. And we had numbers that suggested it could get 
very, very bad before it got better. How bad? You're talking about outbreaks? We at one point could see the possibility of hundreds of thousands of deaths. It was, this is very real, and if the vaccine doesn't work, and if it mutates, if the flu sort of shifts on us a little bit and and mutates a little bit, then we have a massive problem on our hands. And so the lessons were, you be really transparent with the American people about what you're doing to try to solve this and, and all of the various things that you're doing to try to address the problem. And the president was criticized for putting the numbers out. I remember that so clearly. And I thought to myself, (laughs) why would you criticize someone for being honest with you about what might be about to happen? But I mean, I remember there were days when, you know, my chest was tight and 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 that's a situation room situation. You're using the apparatus designed for war to deal with this public health outbreak because this could put our country in uh, hysterics. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, the situation room has this reputation and part of it is totally earned because it is the place where the president goes to plan exactly what you're referring to. But it's actually also the series of conference rooms that are just sort of within the skiff. And so it frequently also just becomes a meeting place. It's like a boardroom or a a conference room. Totally. It's like, oh, I couldn't get a room. It's off limits. That's what I know. I know I was was shown it, but not allowed in it. (laughs) So this learning of calm in the face of crisis and data in the face of confusion. How did it affect you when you were the chief of staff to the secretary of transportation, Anthony Fox, and then he names you without a career background in the rail industry, he names you the head of our country's rail administration. How did learning come into place then? I mean, that's a a great question because that was all actually more stressful then than the most stressful moments at the White House because, like I said, at the White House, I was surrounded by the Rom and Larry and Tims of the world. But the chief of staff job at DOT is really hard and it's overwhelming and it's stressful because it's 55,000 people. And, you know, every time there's smoke in a cabin on an airplane, you get an email. Every time there's an incident, you get an email. And when you've got 55,000 employees, as I've described it, someone is always doing something wrong. And so you are always accountable for that. And actually, when I was chief of staff, I had, and this was the only time this has ever happened to me, I had a panic attack. Really? Yeah. Tell me. I will never forget it. I was running a meeting. The secretary was to my right. I had a room full of people. I was running a meeting about how we were going to address this issue of crude trains. So freight trains, you know, were, were carrying 110 fully loaded cars of crude oil. And one broken wheel, they'd derail 10 or 15 cars. There would be massive fires and explosions. I'd been trying to drive the FRA to address this problem for two years. This is when I was chief of staff, not at FRA. And roadblock after roadblock, bureaucrats slowing things down. And I had long really felt like we were going to have a crude train, have an incident next to an apartment building or next to a school or next to a college. And we were going to have multiple fatalities and injuries. And it was going to be utterly avoidable. And that's where we were going to be. And all of a sudden, I I remember I was sitting in the meeting and I thought I was having a stroke. Hmm. And this is so dumb. You would think that you would say something like, something's wrong with me. I having a strike. I feel awful. And instead, I like faked a cough, excused myself and left the room and went into the kitchen that was down the hall and stood there. Again, I like thought I was having a real health 
crisis and stood there by myself in the kitchen until like it finally started to wane and I started to feel a little bit better. And I mean, I was drenched in sweat and I got some water and I eventually went back into the room and finished the meeting. And I remember thinking back on it. I was like, if wow. you were really having a stroke, like, why did you go to the kitchen? Why didn't you like get help? Which right. is actually- So your advice is speak up. If you- are having that, first of all, you should get help. And second of all, you should learn the lesson I do, which is if you're actually having a panic attack, you should put both your feet on the ground and you should put both your hands on the table and hmm. you should take it so that you're grounded and you should take some deep breaths and you should take a few sips of water and you should like remember that this is just a meeting and that you can't solve the crude train crisis by yourself and you're just one person and that's why there are 55,000 people that work at DOT and take a moment. That takes my mind in a lot of directions, one of which is I often say life is about taking your work seriously but not yourself seriously. And if you can actually smile a little bit and realize that you're not as serious as you think necessarily or the world is not lying on your shoulder, it helps. But those are hard things to say to yourself in those moments, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think those jobs – carry great responsibility, right? And your businesses carry great responsibility. You have employees that are counting on you. And so you can't help but feel very accountable and responsible. But at some point, you know, you have to sort of take a step back and be like, okay, maybe it's, I not, can handle really, this. Maybe it's not about me. So of all the people that you've observed in their leadership and then your own leadership, what person has been the most effective at time management and what did they do to be so great? Cheryl is really good at time management. And what's her secret from your perspective? What can we learn from what your observation is? You know, I think a lot of it is, I mean, and I haven't been around her in a couple of years, but what I observed her doing is not all that different from what many people do. It's it's responding quickly to emails. It's jotting down your notes and crossing off to-do lists. But she just, in my memory, was she knows how to run a meeting. She would keep sort of what she needed to do close at hand. She's frequently like checking off the to-do list and she would go back to her email at night and you would get a bunch of responses. So she just like would keep up with it and it's hard to keep up with. I mean, Rahm Emanuel's, I learned how to run a meeting from him. I mean, he is- How does he he, run it? What's the secret? What's Or what's his style? The priorities were laid out. The day was laid out. He would go around the table, but he would just keep it quick and he knows your job better than you know your job and he knows your issues better than you know your issues. And he can just move through them quickly and ask sort of rapid fire questions and get the answers that he needs. And he just, the guy knows how to run a meeting. You worked by his side for how many years? Six. Six years. Yeah. And I agree. He's a spectacular leader. Crisp, clear, on point. Very good manager. Focused. Moves the ball forward consistently. What was his reaction when, as you described, he knows how to do everyone's job better than they do? Did that cause anger? Did that cut for him? The experience of saying, what do you got? And you don't really understand it as well as he does, but it's your job. How did it make him feel? Because I can imagine if that was my experience, which it is sometimes, right. I, it, it's very hard to be calm yep. and patient and a, yeah. co, a coach or co-creator in those yeah. moments. He is so smart. Like he continues to be the smartest person I've ever worked with or for. And, you know, he has this reputation for being a hothead. But I think given how smart he is and how much he knows and how almost everyone in the meeting knows less than him, I actually think he stays calm much more than he's given credit for. So sometimes for good days and he would listen to the person and ask some questions and agree or disagree or give some instruction. And some days he would say, 
nope, yeah. <laughs> you're wrong, or go talk to this person, or some days you lose his patience. Yeah, I'm with you in terms of forgiving the volatility of greatness, whether it's a great leader in politics, whether it's a great entrepreneur, or of course, a great artist, all of those jobs, leading people, leading enterprises, creating expression are all forms of art. And therefore, great artists to me are not, what they do not do is simply follow. What they do do is struggle probably internally saying, how do I channel something that I don't know how to describe into some mm -hmm. manifestation of, of purpose or mm -hmm. meaning? My experience as a leader is it's hard when I see something and I can't explain to you in two minutes what it is. How can yeah. you not see it? Right, right, right. And I, my imagination is he has the same struggle, which is he just sees it. And therefore, why don't exactly. we all see it? Exactly, exactly. And I think it's, I frankly think it's generous of him that he has brought me and others along with him when we don't see it as fast because he could have left me in the dust. But he and, and a lot of other people, people are complicated. There's like a bunch of different layers. I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that media doesn't understand him and others sometimes, but he is so much more complicated than the way the media has portrayed him and so much, you know, there are a lot of different levels there. You know, he's, he can be volatile. He's also the sweetest, yeah. most loving man that I've ever worked with. I mean, he is basically like a member of my family. You know, Larry Summers is similar. I mean, he gets a bad rap and Larry Summers has been nothing but absolutely wonderful in my experience, to me and to other women that I've seen him work. You know, and yet the Harvard stuff follows him around everywhere, and I, I think it's really unfair. I agree with you that there's a humanity that lies within those who are taking risk or putting themselves first in line in terms of leading into the unknown, right, or, to, or into possibility. Here's a question. Of the West Wing, how many, what percentage of the West Wing from your observation, not specifically when you were there, but let's just uh -huh. say more abstractly, right. go see a therapist regularly while they're <sighs> in office. Oh my God, not enough. I have no idea how many, but not enough. Fascinating, right? I mean, that'd be a, uh, well, first of all, it's a podcast. You can't sit, no one can see me rolling my eyes, but there well, are a lot of, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it, it, it's, it's true today in the West Wing. It was certainly true when I was there. I'm sure it was true before I got there, but everyone there could probably use a little more time yeah. with a therapist yeah. and talking through how it's not about them and it's actually about the country. And, you know, it's really interesting how the approach to so much illness and ailment is you know, front and center, but mental health still has not found a champion. Right. I remember using this, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists basically have a PhD in your brain and your feelings. Like, why would you not go to that person? If you had a heart murmur, you would go to a cardiologist who has a PhD or has a huge degree in making your heart beat the right way. Why would you not go to someone who totally understands your brain and can be like, this is how to deal with stress or this is how to deal with, you know, your marriage or whatever. Yet they don't. I have the same <laughs> observation, which is if you phrase logically the reality of your security versus insecurity, your self-care versus lack of self-care, we are all illogical beings. And it's amazing yeah. how much opportunity there is. And that's one of my edges, I think, as a leader is just being clear to say, take care of yourself. And that matters. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. We digress. <laughs> Before we go to some lightning round questions to close our time together, talk about purpose. Talk about like the meaning of it all. Because my story about your life is that from the early days, there was a framing of 
we matter. This matters. You know, what has driven me throughout my career is public service. Even when I wasn't in government, it was still sort of public service. And I was at Facebook. What I was hoping to work on at the company, what I was always trying to get the company to work on was, you know, things like the organ donation tool and driving the company to see if I could get them to take some steps that would sort of position them as a tool for the public or uh, basically perform a service for the public. So that's always driven me. I just enjoy it more. I feel more satisfied by it. My paychecks have gone up and down depending on government or the private sector. I've always probably made more than I deserved or needed. But, you know, the biggest paycheck has never compared to like the successful day of feeling like you, you know, finished up something that will keep people safer or figured out how to explain what to do if we have an H1N1 crisis or taking some steps to make coal mines safer in West Virginia. Just Where you came from. It all comes full circle. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Let's just go through some quick... Lightning round. This is where I really get fascinated. Tell me your favorite book. Probably Storming Heaven by Denise Gardenia. Do you know that book? I do not. It's about West Virginia. It's about the mine wars in West Virginia. West Virginia is on my mind a lot these days. X plus Y equals fulfillment. What's X and Y? You know, having your work mean something plus being happy at home. If you wanted to offer a model of a great career, professional career, who would you point to? Either of my parents, Rom, people who have had a bunch of different jobs and learned and adapted as circumstances have required. So let's say you're back in the White House, but this time you're the president of the United States. And the question is, what do you do for the transportation industry now that you know what you know? What's the first thing you do? Go big. Go, what does that mean? Uh, go big on spending. I can't even explain what a bad place we're in. In I terms mean, of... In infrastructure? terms of infrastructure, yeah. I mean, I believe that this that the state of our infrastructure is we are at an existential crisis in our economy. I agree. I mean, I think it is. For our next podcast, yes. we're going to talk about that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I would go big. What invention, when you think, you know what, they got to invent this. What do we need to invent? What do we need to invent? Yeah. We need to invent something that helps moms not feel so guilty when they have to go do work stuff. <laughs> Fitting for my next question, which is going to be on the topic of gender equality. If there's one thing that someone can do today to move the needle in the right direction, what can somebody actually do today? I mean, there's just so much. I mean, I think individuals and companies can become better citizens. How about that? That's pretty broad. Okay. So if I want to learn more about the rail industry, I should read blank. Other than Atlas Shrugged. I was going to say, to be honest, you should read one of the many like dorky railroad signaling books that I have. Really? That is funny. Well, I mean, just because it would be interesting so that you would sort of learn about signaling systems and, and the infrastructure Do you think there's ever going to be a more cost-effective form of mass transportation than rail? Yes, but not for a long time. It'll be what? Electronic? Something more hydraulic? or uh, Yeah. Like, I, I think the Hyperloop is a real possibility in many years. No time soon. And it frustrates me how much attention it gets at the moment. Okay. Last question. The best mentor, well, two more. The best mentor you've ever had? Rom. Rom. Okay. Final question. So I'm on the highway in Chicago, 94, driving into the city, and you get to have a billboard that I'm going to see every single day when I'm driving into work. What would it say? Be kinder to each other. That's nice. Sarah Feinberg, it's a perfect ending because I think you're the opportunity to talk to you and and with you and and hear about your life, I think reveals just that a kindness in how you've approached opportunity and how you seem to deal with 
so many personalities along your journey and also a kindness of your orientation around opportunity and, and purpose. So I thank you very much. It's, it's really been a pleasure. So thanks for joining us. What goes through people's minds when making life-changing decisions? How does one know when to pursue an idea? Check out The Upside with Brad Keywell on iTunes and SoundCloud.